Hi, welcome to another exciting edition of the Standing for Freedom podcast here on the campus of Liberty University, where we defend life, liberty, and truth for the next generation. Today, I'm joined by world-renowned MMA fighter and founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation and Warrior Programs, Chad Robichaux. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Man, I'm so excited to, to, to talk with you and talk about life. By the way, you're also a best-selling author. What's the name yeah. of the book? An Unfair Advantage. So, an unfair advantage. Yeah, an unfair advantage. Yeah. So okay. I've written written several several books. Uh, my newest being a military devotional called Behind the Lines. Yeah. Uh, with Broad Street Publishing, and uh, an unfair advantage uh, was with Broad Street, hit number one bestseller, and then um, which is really my story in being made in a motion picture film with uh, Jim Clock, producer Jim Clock, who's here at Liberty right now, and uh, yes. the director of uh, Blue Bloods on CBS, David Barrett's gonna be the director of that. That show is awesome, so that's a good producer. Yeah, he's a, he's a yeah, really good director. I'm very excited about it. Uh, they're gonna start filming like in March, which is it's a little scary, terrifying to me to be, see my, my story, which some very sacred things from Afghanistan and the loss of friends and stuff being portrayed in that movie, but I really have a lot of trust in, yeah. in uh, David Barrett and Jim Clock. To that's awesome. I, I, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about your life, your background. For those that don't know you, um, you've overcome a lot of obstacles and challenges, and certain your, certainly your faith has been instrumental. And so I just want to, I want to delve into that, some background, uh, and really just introducing to even our audience your story. Yeah, so uh, I'm from a very much a Marine Corps family. My father's a Marine who served in Vietnam. Both my sons are Marines. One of them served in Afghanistan. And, and, uh, and I was a Marine, I was a Force Recon Marine, which is Special Operations in the Marine Corps. And uh, I was very privileged to become part of a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, a JSOC Task Force, and work with the, what I many believe to be the most premier uh, Special Operations team uh, in the world. And I uh, did eight deployments in that capacity. And I went, went to Afghanistan uh, and you know, got to surf uh, post 9-11 mm -hmm. and to go and you know, hunt and uh, capture, kill those bad guys responsible for the September 11th attacks. And, uh, you know, like many uh, many of the warriors who we deal with at Mighty Oaks Foundation, which we'll talk a little bit more about that, um, I dealt with some of those things, same things coming home. It really started manifesting like anger, frustration, and then, um, you know, that, we, that my family would have to deal with, you know, me coming home and just being, you know, believing I had to be this violent, aggressive person because that was kind of how I was uh, wired uh, operating in Afghanistan. And, you know, now 24 hours later, I'd be home with my family trying to be a husband and father. So really it started with that kind of anger and irritability and frustration. And then it started to manifest in these physiological symptoms like numbness in my body, in my limbs, my arms, my face, throat feel like it's swelling shut. You know, these are signs of panic attacks. You feel like you have a thousand pound weight in your chest and yeah. you're going to have a heart attack. And, uh, you know, I didn't get the help I needed because I've was with a little special operations unit. I felt like if I spoke up, the guys would think I was weak. Mm -hmm. If I went to mental health, I may lose my top secret clearance and not be able to do my job. So I pushed it down and tried to uh, hold it together and only those symptoms got worse. Uh, we had uh, uh, several team members killed, uh, uh, 12 team members killed in one incident. 10 of them were Afghans, which may not sound like a, as big of a deal to some of the people listening, but to me, these were my teammates. They were my, bro my brothers, yeah. yeah. I lived in their homes for three years. I played soccer with their kids and ate dinner with their families, and I loved these guys and, uh, and you know, fought alongside them, and, and uh, you know, I would have died for them, and they would have died for me. And In fact, I do believe they did die for me. And so when that happened, if I was hanging on by a thread, that thread was broken. Uh, those PTSD symptoms really settled in. I started having what's called disassociation, where your mind almost feels out of body. And uh, you know, I, I did some things that I felt like was putting other people in danger, not, not just myself. And so that prompted me to speak up 
I was brought home, diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, my family and I faced a three-year downward spiral in my life mm -hmm. uh, where uh, I was dealing with debilitating panic attacks, shame, uh, feeling like I failed, uh, you know, what I believed to be the most important thing I could do in my life at that time. And, uh, and, and uh, the panic attacks, the, you know, many people talk about panic attacks, not minimizing anybody's experience, but sometimes I hear people say like, man, I was in traffic the other day and I had a panic attack. Yeah. Well, this is not what I'm, I mean, like imagine like drowning and uh, in your bottom of a swimming pool, chained at the bottom of a swimming pool, drowning, and how desperate would you be for a breath of air? But you never drown, you never die, it's 24-7, that level of like, mm -hmm. I'm dying at any moment. And, and real quick, just to pause right here, because I think a lot of times for folks, um, some folks have dealing with mental health, uh, it, it, it's one of those things where it's, um, it's theoretical, until it hits you, until it impacts some, a family member, maybe yeah. that's going through that depression, anxiety, or Very even po post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome uh, disorder. You you are talking about something that is a, a another level, uh, it, you know, just of of, of the acute, um, the physiological as well as the mental coming together. It can be very debilitating. A lot of people turn to alcohol, drugs, other other things as an escape or ways to lessen those pains. They're very, very real. They're very, very serious. More awareness has been raised, but I think a lot of people still are intrigued by it, have questions because they don't really understand it or even how to relate to it. So if someone's going through that. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand what it is and what it's not. I wrote a book called The Truth About PTSD, which takes a, a creation perspective. Uh, I still believe there's a clinical side to it, but understanding that God did create our bodies to respond a certain way mm -hmm. to things that we were never created or intended to see or do. And when we uh, participate in things like war or see traumatic incidents, we were never created or designed to experience those things. And God has programmed a mechanism in our limbic system that, al that allows for a physiological effect to take place to protect us from uh, danger and future incidents. Mm -hmm. And when those physiological effects manifest, through you know, raised levels of cortisol, uh, through adrenaline, uh, through your blood, uh, your blood pressure and heart rate, and all these different physiological effects that happen, you know, acute vision and and uh, and, and uh, when you're when you have auto exclusion, all these things that happen in the high stress environments, uh, when those things happen in those high stress environments, now you're outside of those environments and it happen again, it can feel very abnormal. It can feel very, the word in PTSD, disordered, mm -hmm. and uh, and so the mistake can be made to over medicate those symptoms and never let the body actually do what it was created and designed to do, which is reacclimate to mm. norms. You know, if you were in Afghanistan and, and drove past a, a little red Corolla and, and you had four of your friends in the vehicle and that red, little red Corolla ex exploded and killed everyone but you. And now five years later, you're back home in your hometown of Bales of Hay, Iowa somewhere, and you're driving on Main Street and you pass a little red Corolla and all of a sudden you feel you can't breathe. You feel your heart rate going. You're not disordered. Your body's recognizing a threat and it's doing what God designed it to do. And, uh, and you don't need to be on what we see in many cases, 20 plus pills a day uh, by the VA and DOD to deal with that. What you need to do is drive past that car, recognize it's not a threat, let your body begin to reacclimate to what is and what is not a threat. And uh, you know, God, this, this is a, something that people really struggle with, mm -hmm. uh, not treat it. It can lead to what we see in the veteran community, over 20 suicides per day. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the beautiful thing is that God did design us to be able to reacclimate our bodies, to be able to recalibrate. Yeah. And, uh, and understanding from that perspective, which is why I wrote that book, um, it really helped me in a lot of my healing. So as, as we go, f so 
here you are, you're, you've come back eight tours, uh, you know, you're, you had a three year, you say downward spiral with PTSD. So how did you overcome that? How did you get reacclimated? Yeah, I tried other things, right? I went to, I went to clinical counseling, I took medication. I really immersed myself in something I did since I was five years old, which was martial arts. Uh, I was already a professional MMA fighter on the side when I was in the military. So I, I didn't go to drugs or alcohol, I dove into that. And when I first got on those mats and trained for the first time, I felt like I found a cure because you can't think about Afghanistan while you're training for a fight. You're going to get beat up. You have to be focused. You have to be present. And, uh, but you can be sick and take a medicine for something that's good for you, but you could abuse that medicine as well. Yeah. And that's what I did with that. I never actually got well. I used it as a place to hide, like climbing in a bottle of alcohol. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of success. I won a world title. I was 18 and 2 as a professional fighter, fought on all the big shows. Uh, but because I had this like really fake facade of success of on the surface it looked well, but underneath I was still dealing with panic attacks, anger. My family was dealing with a tyrant of a you know husband and father, and and uh, and I ended up in a in a in a affair uh, in relationships with other women. And I sat my family down and told them we were going to get divorced, and we sold our home, we filed for divorce, moved in two separate apartments, and uh, during that time alone, I, I recognized the damage I did to everyone around me. And this thought came over me, maybe my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. Mm. And that, unfortunately, that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of over 20 veterans a day, and many outside the veteran community, right? Maybe my family would be sad, maybe my loved ones would be sad, but the world would be better off without me. And uh, so it was like kind of a twisted way, a noble thing that I wanted to do for my family, like unburden them of me. And, uh, and maybe, like, again, maybe they might be sad, but in the end, They'd be better. Be better. Yeah, yeah, right. And so uh, I would sit in my closet in my apartment and I had like, I put my family pictures on the floor around me. I don't know why I did this, but maybe like saying goodbye. And, and I had a Glock 22 pistol, 40 caliber pistol. Mm -hmm. I put it to my head and obviously I've been around guns and seen what guns do and know what happens when that trigger breaks. And, and I try to pull, pull, have the courage to, you know, pull that trigger, even taking the time to be like, making sure the angle is right. I'm not going to feel any pain. And, uh, but this one thought would come over me every time I put that gun in my head was, who is going to find me? Or somebody's going to find you. Gonna, somebody's going to hear the gunshot. You're going to be missing. Like, I'm in an apartment building. Someone's going to find you. And uh, the one person that had a key to my apartment besides me was my oldest son, Hunter, who was 13 at the time. And I, I thought, you know, that would be, the, that was the one thing that maybe had kind of pumped the brakes and say, I can't let my son be part of mm. finding me this way. And, uh, and, uh, and I was, but I was in such a dark place that it, the next day I was back at, that act, trying to build up the courage to do it again. And one of those mornings, uh, it was one morning I was in that closet uh, with that pistol in my hand. I wasn't up to my head at the time, but I had the pistol in my hand and I heard a knock on my door and I wasn't gonna answer it, but I heard my wife announce her voice. And, when, and something I told her to go there, we were separated. We were in a very toxic uh, time in our relationship and like there was no cordial discussion. It was, I was a very toxic person. And she, uh, when I heard her voice, like, I was like a little kid getting caught doing something wrong. Uh, she, it was my closet. She would never came in there. But I hid that pistol under a blanket, like ashamed. And I went and answered the door, and I got in this irate argument with her. Uh, I was really, it might sound twisted to say, but I was really mad at her for interrupting me trying to kill myself. Mm. And uh, I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, yeah. And, and uh, yelling at her. And, in, and she, in the middle of that argument, she asked me a question that radically changed my life. It saved my life. She asked me, you know, Chad, how could you do all the things you did? And we met when we were 17. So she saw me become a recon marine, which, you know, it's like an 80% attrition rate. She saw me do that. She saw me go through all these schools and, you know, dive school and free ball school and training things and 
going to Afghanistan and then training for MMA fights. I, I cut 35 pounds of weight to make weight for fights. Like the amount of discipline she saw in my life, my, my professional life. She's like, how could you do all of that? But when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, you know, for me, there's no more soul cutting word than to be called the quitter. Mm. And uh, she was right. I'd, I'd been successful at professional things in my life, but when it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, uh, being a young 17 year old kid for me that raised his hand and made an oath to do something important with my life. I quit on all those things, including my will to live. And uh, I made a pretty radical decision in that moment that I was going to get well and get back in the fight. I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I really knew I couldn't do it with the people I'd surrounded myself by because I'd pretty much systematically surrounded myself by people that told me everything I wanted to hear and not what I needed to hear. Being a jujitsu black belt, being a, you know, a high level MMA fighter, I kind of had control of my world and pushed accountability out of my life, which is a terrible place for anyone to be. And most, right. most dangerous place to, that to be. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, uh, so I knew that I knew that that was my situation. I knew I needed accountability. So I said, is this, I asked my wife, is this someone at this church you're going to that she was, had been really seeking relate, uh, fellowship in during the time we were apart that could hold me accountable to this. And I met a man named Steve Toth and Steve wasn't an MMA fighter or, or Marine or he didn't know what in the military or anything like that. But I met him at a Starbucks coffee shop and I slid a paper over to him right when I met him, probably, probably arrogantly. And uh, uh, this five paragraph order, military operational order of how I was gonna fix my life. I was, I went, cause when I made the decision, I'm kind of all in. I put it on paper, like what I'm gonna do. And I wanted to win my wife back now. So I'm like, this guy's my way. I'm gonna use him to win my wife back. So I slid this plan over to him and he didn't even look at it. He put his hand on the paper, slid it back over to me and told me I was gonna fail. And I remember being like really offended. I'm like, what a jerk. Like you didn't even look at this and it's really good. And now I'm, I'm just pretty arrogant, probably attitude at the time. And, he tapped on the paper while he was staring at me and, and uh, he said something, uh, uh, of course, I'll never forget. He said, uh, if this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not going to let you waste mine. Mm. And uh, like I said, I had tried everything, you know, pillows, counseling, VA programs, professional success, financial success, had all the accolades and all that stuff. Uh, some of those things were good, some of those things were bad, but none of those things really changed my situation. And we have a, a, a saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation that was kind of birthed from this moment. If what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Yeah. And I tried everything, so it was time to try something different. So I surrendered my life to Christ through that. Wow. Okay, so lots of things are happening going on through your head. But what I am curious, your wife, ex-wife, you know, at that time, was she your ex-wife? We, we hadn't. We hadn't. We filed for divorce. We hadn't divorced. Hadn't, okay. Yeah. And but by she, the way, it's been 26 years married now. So Praise God. Yeah. That's awesome. We just awesome. got back from Jamaica to celebrate now 26. That's awesome. awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and that's, by the way, that's the way to go. That was, <laughs> my wife and I love Jamaica. Yeah. But uh, she is compelled by what? Maybe the Holy Spirit? Was the yeah. Lord prompting her to go to the door and to knock? Or what, what happened? I don't know. Uh, she just said she just knew. She had talked to me on the phone and knew something was right. She was worried about me. She, at that point in her life, I don't think she was ever trying to save our marriage because mm -hmm. she thought I had made decisions, especially through an affair that where our marriage is over. Yeah. But she really cared about me. Yeah. Like, not our marriage, but me. Uh, as someone she cared about, as the father to her, our children. And uh, she said she would go to church and, uh, and not just on Sundays, but like during the week. And she'd go in there just to pray for me. While I was cheating on her, leaving her, like she would go and pray for me. And she, there's a wall in this church. I still, we, we go to this church still to this day. And, uh, and uh, people tell me that's where she would stand. And she would collapse praying and crying. And uh, she would say that she would pray, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. That's what she would pray for me. Yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, she was really such 
kind of an intimate relationship with God there in a time that I believe God probably led her there to save me. That's amazing. And, and then you have this conversation, of course, with a pastor who also has a spine, has a backbone. Yeah. And he's like, and I, lo- I really appreciate pastors who fear God and are not impressed with people. That's one of the things. So immediately, you know, you have used a, to, I was very accustomed to manipulating people at that time in my yeah. life. And, uh, and I always say he wasn't an MMA fighter or a military guy, but he had the perfect gift to help uh-huh. me. He has ADD, like really bad. I mean, like I go eat lunch with him. I don't know what that's like. (laughs) I go eat lunch with him still to this day, and he he doesn't walk to his car. He runs because like walking across the parking lot is a waste of time. And the reason that was such a gift for me is because I was so prepared to use him and manipulate him to win my wife back, me to take control of the situation. Mm. He just didn't have the patience for that. He didn't have the patience for me to tell him what, uh, you know, kind of use. He just, and, and previous to that, he had mentored, I didn't know this, but the last person he had mentored, he had kind of taken a break from, counseling people because the last person he had mentored he felt like he was soft on and the guy killed himself Uh, Uh, and he didn't tell him the hard things and so now I'm the next guy and he's like I'm gonna be bold yeah Uh, and uh, and and I was the person that he probably had to be bold with because Mm -hmm. if not I would have ran over him Wow one of my favorite pastors uh, and he's he's been in ministry for over 50 years is uh, John MacArthur Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things one of uh, quote I use from him all the time is soft preaching makes for hard hearts yeah. hard preaching makes for soft hearts yeah. and so uh, that you know go hard and yeah. uh, when 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 if you're speaking truth yeah truth is truth like I, I'm you know I'm dealing with a guy right now that's in an affair with his wife is a strong believer one of the strongest believers in my life I'm shocked that he's having an affair with his wife right now but I'm just being like tremendously bold with him. I'm like, hey yeah. man, like uh, you're being selfish. And he's like, I'm not selfish, I love my family. I'm like, no, you're, you're selfish. Like, and he's like, you, you can speak hard truths to people. Uh, I don't think you need to be That's cruel right. or mean. Uh, you could do it with a loving heart, but sometimes truth, yeah. is, con- truth is convicting. And, uh, and you know, that's, I need to, I need it to, I could say from someone that was there, making selfish decisions, uh, train wrecking, not just my life, but my, my wife and kids' lives, like I needed someone that had the courage to tell me hard truths. So in that moment, when was the moment though, I guess, you know, and this is mainly for our, for our listeners, um, that you surrendered your life. What was that So like? it, I walked away from the conversation with Steve. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a processor. I'm a skeptic by nature, especially with, I had been before with faith, which is why I spent the last 10 years of my life reconciling my decision through apologetics, study of apologetics. and and I conv- continued to become more and more uh, convinced of the, the truth of the gospel mm-hmm. uh, through that. But um, I went home to my apartment and uh, I just felt like a, a brokenness come over me because I, I, I decided that I was gonna trust this man. I, I got on my knees and I, I began to uh, have a conversation with God, surrendering my life to Christ. Whatever he wanted to do with my life, I was gonna give it, uh, him a chance. And I broke down in a, in, in a, in a complete, uh, flow of tears, and I hadn't had felt imp- any empathy or emotion in my in my life for years, um, and it was uncontrollable tears. I think for repentance and for for um, just hurt and recon- re- the reconciling the hurt I did to others. Uh, you know, the Bible says you'll take your heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. flesh that's I right. In that moment, uh, my heart was turned to a heart of flesh, and I could feel again. I could feel empathy again. So it was almost a miraculous imp- uh, immediate thing for me. But beyond that decision. And which is very important for everyone to hear, S- that didn't end there. Steve discipled me for an entire year in yeah. b- biblical manhood, biblical living. And what I discovered through that process was 
simple to a lot of people, pretty profound to me because I'm kind of like a hardhead person. Uh, I discovered that all these things that happened to me in my life, uh, you know, my brother was killed when we were 13 and 14 years old. We were, we were working to join, going special forces together. Um, traumatic childhood that we didn't talk about from my Vietnam yeah. father who struggled. Uh, Afghanistan, losing friends in Afghanistan, the th- issues with my wife, like all these things that happened to me, and I mentioned some of them, but as bad as those things were, those things didn't lead me to be in that closet with a pistol man. What led me there were the choices that I made in response to those things. And I never lost control of the ability to choose. I couldn't change my past, but I could choose differently moving forward. And as cliche as it sounds, I came to this recognition, uh, recognition that I didn't have to let my past define my future. Yeah. I could choose a different future moving forward, and I did. And through that process and being biblically uh, mentored and discipled, I recognized that as I made those choices, I had something to align to, the biblical principles that God intended us to live by. And so instead of choosing the way I felt based on emotions or based on uh, anger or joy or depression, based on those things that I've made decisions before, I made those decisions based on biblical principles. And when I began to intentionally do that in my life, which was a, a very disciplined approach to living, when I began to do that, I found restoration in my own life, through my own brokenness, through PTSD, in my marriage and my family, uh, you know, through a, a very long process, of course, but I uh, found restoration through that, uh, aligning my marriage and my relationship with my kids through these biblical principles. I found hope again, probably mm-hmm. the first time in a long time, and ultimately I found what I wanted and sought my whole life, and that's purpose. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain. Yeah. says, the two most important days in a person's life is the day that they're born and the day they find out why. That's it. And when Steve Toth introduced me to life that I believe God created me to live, I found out the why. Yeah. And, it, and it, it manifested in my life for God putting a deep burden on my heart to share what I had discovered with others. It was like if I was dying of cancer and this guy gave me the cure, like I didn't want to share it. I felt an obligation to share it. And that manifested in the founding of, of Mighty Oaks Foundation. Okay, so I want to get there. I want to talk about that. Real quick, I do want to address something that you brought up and I think really important. Today's culture and, and certainly kind of the cancel culture, cultural Marxism, you're seeing this all, all over, um, but there's this ideological sickness and what it wants to do is create large pools of victim, right? Uh, and, then, and then a large pool of villain. And one of the things that you mentioned, and I think it's really, it bears repeating, is that you had plenty of things that you could have created as excuses. I can blame my dad, I can blame you know, my experience uh, in Afghanistan, um, the, the, maybe the personal struggles that you and your wife went through. You can blame any number of things, but ultimately it was your responsibility, your sin. You have to bear that ultimate responsibility of decision, decisions and choices you've made. And I think the moment, I think that, that, that people recognize, and this is only God can do this, truly convict our hearts, is to say, no, 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 you are not a victim. Uh, you have violated um, ultimately a, a sacred relationship, and that is with God. You, you know, David, when he goes um, before the Lord in prayer, he says, it's you and you only have I sinned. That's in Psalm 51. When conviction comes upon us, it's a recognition that actually we are ultimately responsible, uh, responsible for our sin. And so, yeah, there might be uh, sin in the life of others. We might, uh, someone has done us wrong. We've experienced um, trials, um, the likes of which no one else has maybe experienced, right? Uh, and all of these things can be created as an excuse. And I think the devil tries to plant that lie. Sure. Yeah. You are a victim. You're a victim. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's somebody else's. But God in the gospel 
it is all about repentance. We have to come to that point of brokenness and recognizing that it's really us. And it starts here. And we have to repent of that, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, tell us about the Mighty Oaks Foundation. First, I want to, I want to respond to what you just said. Yeah, yeah. I, say, uh, I just thought of it, and it's, uh, as you're saying it, I'm, you know, um, you know, entitlement is, is a disease. Yeah. And the cure to it is personal responsibility. Uh, when you, we take personal responsibility for our lives, that's the only time. You hear this in, in counseling all the time. You can't help someone unless they want help, yeah. right? Uh, and, and until someone's willing to take personal responsibility, mm. uh, not, you know, for whatever happened. What, mm. They have to take first responsibility moving forward. You can never change the past. We don't have the ability to do that. There's never going to be a time machine <laughs> that's no. going to give us the ability right. to do that. That's not reality. Uh, you can never change the past, but we can all take personal responsibility for how we move forward. Yeah. And uh, whether we've been hurt or wronged, it doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I think most of us base, base those decisions on, like, well, was I wronged? Am I right? Like, it's, that doesn't matter. You have to take personal responsibility moving forward. Yeah. The parable of the debtors uh, in the Gospels where the one debtor owes the other, uh, and he, uh, he's forgiven. And then that debtor, by the way, is, uh, is the debt owed ultimately to the Lord. Then somebody else, or rather, that person's forgiven, and then somebody owes him a debt, and he's not willing to forgive it, right? And in that, in that story, Jesus is trying to get across that we have to learn forgiveness. But first, we have to ultima ultimately recognize that we're responsible for God. And I don't think anybody ultimately understands personal responsibility um, on the level uh, of, of a Christian, unless you've actually walked through that and know what it's like um, to face your Creator, you know, in recognition of, of, uh, of what we owe Him. Um, okay. So Mighty Oaks. Mighty Oaks. Let's talk about that. I, I do want to... So, the, the foundation, obviously, through this experience, you're inspired. You want to help others. Tell us about it. What are, you, what are you guys currently doing? Yeah, so 10 years ago, uh, when God put it on my heart to pay forward what I had discovered, uh, we, it manifested in the founding of Mighty Oaks Foundation. And in that last 10 years, uh, we've been able to do some incredible things. We have a, an incredible staff uh, that we built over the last 10 years, and, um, and uh, we've been able to do what's called our resiliency programs. So we kind of work in three areas. The main uh, resiliency programs is where I primarily go out to bases by request of the military around the world, and uh, speak on things like suicide prevention, on uh, combat readiness, and uh, the main topic is spiritual resiliency. The military talks about pillars of resiliency, mind, body, spirit, and social, but really doesn't, hasn't been able to define what spiritual mm. pillar, the spiritual pillar really is and what it means. So I'm able to say through my own story uh, to a broad spectrum of people, not just in Christian audiences, but a broad spectrum of people, what my spiritual foundation is and was and how it redeemed me and, uh, and how it could be helped to be preventative of some of these things. And uh, I've been able to speak to 250,000 active duty troops. Of my books, I've been able to give about 150,000 of my books away to the troops doing this. I go to places like Marine Corps Boot Camp, where they let me, for six years now, let me speak to all the brand new Marine recruits and give them a book uh, called Path to Resiliency that I've written on, a, on that spiritual pillar, the spiritual foundation. And so that's a, kind of our preventative effort. And then our recovery side, we have a program called a legacy program where we help uh, people who have dealing with different types of issues from the military service, PTSD, anxiety, depression, uh, some substance abuses. We we're not a substance abuse treatment facility, but yeah. people that are dealing with those lifestyle choices, uh, divorce, you know, divorce is uh, 
you were talking a 80% divorce rate in combat veterans, wow. uh, 20 suicides a day still. So all these issues, right? We, we have a legacy program that come spend a week with us at one of our ranches. We have uh, five locations in Texas, Ohio, Virginia, California, um, and, and Montana. So we have these ranches we bring them to. We do 35 of those one week camps per year. And, uh, and uh, they, after that week they spent with us, we, they tie in, step into our aftercare program, which has two tracks. One is just aftercare to care for them, and the other is discipleship, which is our leadership track where we disciple them. They're able to do the same for others. And, uh, and in the last 10 years, we've had 4,000 graduates. Wow. Although now we're doing about 1,000 per year. And, uh, and it's about, it's about 3.5 to $4 million a year in programming uh, that we able to, just because of a grateful nation, That's believes awesome. what we do, and God's brought the provisions along to do that. And of the tremendous successes we've had from that, it's really pushed us into, thrust us into a third area that we have taken on, and that's advocacy work. So I have uh, worked a lot in Washington, D.C. I've testified before Congress on faith-based programs. Yeah. Uh, I've uh, helped some uh, pass some bipartisan Senate bills on faith-based programs and funding of, uh, for VSOs uh, outside of the VA. Uh, President Trump uh, was able, I was able to work with President Trump directly on uh, getting executive order signed to bring faith programs back into the VA and DOD, as well as uh, be the uh, chairman of one of the White House's faith-based veterans coalitions uh, for, for the last administration and make sure the prevents bill, which President Trump had put in place, included faith programs. And, and I actually got to directly advise the Deputy uh, Secretary of the VA, Pam Powers at the time, Amazing. on the implementation of faith programs. And so because of the successes we've had in our ministry, we've been able to have that influence um, on policy in Washington, D.C. That's awesome. Uh, so the Lord has brought you through, obviously, I, I, I can see uh, God's hand on your life through all of this and, and brings you to this moment now where then you're obviously able to build a ministry where you impact the lives of thousands. Um, what would be, I mean, just anecdotally, I, I, would, I always like to hear stories again, you know, um, maybe a, a, a story of some individuals, maybe, maybe that caught you by surprise or some that have been infected by Mighty Oaks. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think everyone thinks that uh, you have a program like Mighty Oaks, all these veterans with all these, because you, right, you hear about the problems yeah. and, uh, you know, there's 20 suicides a day and uh, high divorce rates and the levels of PTSD and you think it's going to be so easy to have access to these people. You've had good program, everyone's going to come rushing, knocking on the door to come. Mm. That's just not the case. It takes a tremendous amount of work uh, to be able to reach the people that God called us to reach. Uh, to gain the trust, garner the trust of the military, the active duty military leadership, the veteran community. Uh, we do, we accomplish that on a peer-to-peer -peer level. But the, the ones, you know, we've, we've gained obviously a lot with, the, with our numbers, a lot of demand for what we do because of the successes of it and personal testimony. But still the ones that need it the most are really reluctant to take that step from being enabled and, uh, and entitled and feeling entitled to that personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, they don't wanna do it, they don't wanna get help. The ones that need it the most and there's so many stories about how they've either been bribed or manipulated by their family or commander. Like, you know, commander's like, hey, either go to the brig or, or get kicked out of the military or go to Mighty Oaks. Or, or a spouse is like, either you go to Mighty Oaks or you, I'm leaving. Or a mm -hmm. mom's like, I'm kicking you out of our basement if you don't go to Mighty yeah. Oaks. Like all these different, all these different things. And, and, I, and I love hearing the stories of how these guys came there. And there's this one uh, Navy SEAL, uh, named, and his name's Colin, and he... Uh, he had gotten some trouble with his wife, uh, um, uh, and uh, he, 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 him and his wife were having some problems, so he went to a bar to kind of drink it off, ended up getting in a horrific bar fight, beat the heck out of somebody in this bar, and now he was going to jail. 
and uh, and he somehow it led to him. You could go to Mighty Oaks, and uh, and basically he was actually able to show he was seeking some help. I don't know if it was through the judge or the DA. A lot of times we work with a lot of district attorneys. Anyways, he agreed to go under the pressure of his wife and whoever influenced, else influenced him to come. But on his drive there, he said, I'm not going to go. I'm going to look for a, a tree or a rock to crash into on the way there uh, and make it look like an accident. So he undid a seatbelt. We fly most of our guys in, but he wanted to drive. Uh, so he, he undid a seatbelt, and as he drove to come to Mighty Oaks, he started looking for a tree or a rock to drive it, to crash his, his truck into. And uh, as he kept driving and never finding the right spot, he ended up on our ranch. <laughs> that was a long drive, too. He ended up on our ranch. He so never couldn't find an oak, but he found Mighty Oaks. <laughs> he found right? Mighty Oaks, yep. Yeah. He came there uh, and, and had a radical encounter with, with Jesus at our program. Yeah. Uh, took personal responsibility, pulled his life back together, and, uh, and now has become one of our um, prominent team leaders at Mighty Oaks and has led dozens of guys to Christ mm. uh, through his personal story. And, and, uh, and I can name you know, so many stories like that. And Joe, a uh, master sergeant marine, jumped out of a seven-story window right in front of his wife, tried to kill himself, uh, right in front of his wife, told her, bye. Like she, he yeah. was going to shoot himself. He was going to take some pills. He, was gonna take, he had some alcohol and pills. He was going to take it, numb himself up to uh, shoot himself. His wife came into the hotel room. He just said, bye. Stepped out of a seven-story window, missed the pavement by a foot, shattered both of his legs from his ankles all the way up to his hips. Wow. And the day he came out of the hospital, he came to Mighty Oaks uh, on crutches, hobbling around, gave his life to Christ, and now he's a team leader in our program, That's leading awesome. other guys. So, yeah. so many stories like that. Okay, final word. Uh, I imagine um, a young chat out there, okay, who is not with the Lord. Um, maybe, maybe he's grown up in the church. Maybe he's grown up apart from it. But he comes. He's he's in a situation not too different from yours. Um, where uh, he's got struggles. Uh, he certainly have, has family members that's made life difficult. Um, and, you know, he's, he's tough. Uh, he's strong-willed. He's strong-headed. Um, and he's got, he's got ways he's going to solve these problems. What's, what's some advice you give to that young Chad, having gone through what you have? How would you challenge him? How would you encourage him? How would you even push back? Yeah. Well, at first I'd ask the same question that Steve indirectly asked me is if what you're doing in your life isn't working. And obviously, you know, if we're having this conversation, probably what he's doing in his life isn't working. Mm -hmm. Then why not try something different? Yeah. Why not give God a chance? What do you have to lose by giving, especially at a program like ours where it's six days, what do you have to lose? You know, if you tried everything else, you know, and, uh, you know, most people uh, can relate to feeling there's something missing in their life. Mm -hmm. They can't put their finger on it, but they know they're not being quite the person that they believe they were created to be or born to be, even if they don't believe they were created. They're like something's, even if they don't have a relationship with God and they never, they don't, the Holy Spirit's not dwelling inside of them, they still know deep down something is missing. I, I'm, I'm yearning for something more. Everybody knows that feeling unless you're in that intimate relationship with Christ. I didn't feel it till I was in my, probably close to my you know, late 30s because I didn't really step into life yet and really understand that. So most people live their whole life with that. Even if they grew up in a church home because maybe that wasn't, that was their parents' relationship with God, not their personal one. And if you have that feeling, then why not, what do you have to lose to go on a quest to discover how to fill that hole? Uh, how, to, how to, you know, quench that desire that you have. And I, and I could tell, you know, you that anyone 
that is listening and, and can feel that, there's no way, there's no alternative, not money, not women, not drugs, not success, not be, being a billionaire and have, there's no, nothing that'll quench the desire uh, outside of a relationship with God and systematically align your life with the life God created you to live. Mm. Nothing will solve that. Amen. And, uh, and so what do you have to lose to try to gain that? Nothing, yeah. right? everything to gain. Good final word, Chad Robicho. Thank you so much for all that you're doing for Mighty Oaks Foundation. Uh, obviously, your career as a fighter and as a veteran, thank you for your service. And uh, um, blessings on you and your family uh, as you continue to walk through this. I know um, the, fight, the fight never ends for us, right? Uh, the, the, we're in a spiritual battle. This right? country's in a spiritual battle. This yeah. world's in a spiritual battle right now, particularly right. Yeah. You know, in our country right now. Amen. So pray for this country as well. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you for joining our podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. All right.